Over the years, I've watched a lot of movies. How many of you are movie buffs? You've watched more than your fair share over your lifetime. Well, I've watched a lot of movies, and I've got to admit to you today that I've watched a lot of dumb movies. And even a bigger confession, sometimes I really enjoy dumb movies. And one of my favorite dumb movies of all time is the 1986 classic starring Chevy Chase and Steve Martin and Martin Short. It is none other than, dun dun dun, dun The Three Amigos. How many of you have seen The Three Amigos? Well, we learn early on in the movie that our three heroes are actually bumbling stars there of the silent era. The year is 1916, I believe. And so they're silent movie stars. Well, south of the border, uh, down in a little town called Santo Poco, there are a couple that look at the screen there at the movie theater and see the three amigos saving the day and rescuing a town. So they get this idea to pool all their money and hire the three amigos to come down into Mexico to the town of Santo Poco and save the day. Because they're being terrorized by the infamous El Guapo. El Guapo and his team of banditos to keep raiding the town and shooting it up and stealing all their tequila. And so... The three amigos come to town. They don't know that it's a real bad guy that's attacking the town and real banditos shooting real bullets. But anyways, the movie unfolds. It gets to the end of the movie, and the three amigos are trying to rally the town to, for the first time ever, take a stand against El Guapo. And Ned Niederlander gives this rousing speech, and I love what he says in that speech. He asks the question, now... What does this town really do well? And all the people of town kind of scratch their heads and they can't think of anything because they can't fight worth a darn. They don't know how to shoot a gun. And finally, a little old lady speaks up and she says, we can sew. And the three amigos say, you can sew if we had only known this sooner. But what, what can we do with sewing? And so they have this bright idea. They will get everyone in town to grab whatever sewing machine they can find, and as quickly as possible, they will sew like the wind and sew costumes that look just like the three amigos. And so there El Guapo and his banditos are on horseback riding toward uh, that town as quickly as they can. And finally El Guapo arrives, and he's no longer facing just three amigos. He's facing a hundred. Everywhere he looks, there's individuals that look like the three amigos, and he feels overwhelmed. Half of his men turn around and leave town, and at the end of the movie, El Guapo is defeated. The three amigos ride off into the sunset, and El, in that little town of Santa Poco, lives happily ever after. Oh, isn't that sweet? And so I was thinking about this this last week, because as we get to this passage we're looking at today... We're going to turn here to John 6, and Jesus is going to demonstrate his amazing ability to multiply what we bring to him. Jesus stands in front of a crowd of over 10,000 people who are facing their own El Guapo, hunger. And Jesus saves the day by taking one boy's measly lunch and multiplying it to meet the need. Amen? Well, here we are in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I encourage you to follow along there in your Bibles. Once again, John 6, beginning in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. 
Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have even a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? We'll go ahead and stop there for now. May God bless us as we study his word today. Well, I've got a question for you. Together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record for us about 30 separate miracles that Jesus performed during his ministry years here on earth. So as we read the gospel accounts, it's pretty clear that Jesus performed hundreds of miracles, but there are 30 specific miracles that are recorded by the four gospel writers. Here's the question. Of those 30 miracles, how many of the 30 are recorded for us by all four gospel writers? And the answer is one. (laughs) If you don't include Jesus' resurrection, which is one of the greatest miracles of all, of course, but if you look at the others, there's only one miracle that is shared by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because remember, John wrote his gospel accounts some 20 to 30 years after the other guys had written their accounts. He did not set out to repeat what had already been sufficiently shared. But there is this one exception, and it's this miracle that we're going to look at today in John 6, the only miracle of the 30 recorded by all four gospel writers. Interesting. One thing that's really cool about that is we can see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke some of the details surrounding this miracle that John does not include. And so there'll be some times over the next few minutes I refer to what Matthew says, what Mark says, and what Luke says so we can get a fuller picture of what was going on when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Take another look with me in verses 1 and 2. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. By the way, Tiberias was the name the Romans liked to use for the Sea of Galilee. That's why John includes that here. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. In John 5, remember what happened in the last chapter. We spent a few weeks on John chapter 5. Jesus goes at a certain feast of the Jews to Jerusalem, the capital city, and he sees a man outside the perimeter walls of the temple, there at the pool of Bethesda, a man sitting there poolside who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus heals this crippled man. After 38 years of not being able to walk, suddenly the man is able to walk. And then the chapter concludes with the Jewish leaders chewing Jesus out because not only had he healed someone on the Sabbath, they considered that work. You're not supposed to heal someone on the Sabbath, evidently. But then Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And so that's where chapter 5 ends with Jesus claiming to be the Son of God and giving six points of evidence that prove that he's the Son of God. There's this gap of time between the end of chapter 5 In the beginning of chapter 6, John simply says, sometime after this. Well, if that feast referred to in John chapter 5 was the Feast of Tabernacles, we know that on the Jewish calendar that fell somewhere between September and October on our calendar. And then it says in verse 4 here of chapter 6 that the Passover feast was at hand. 
And so we know that took place in March or April. So in all likelihood, there's a six-month gap of time between the end of chapter 5 and the end of chapter 6. Why is that important to know? Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us a lot of what happened during those six months. They give us a wonderful background that helps us understand why Jesus feeds the 5,000 here in this chapter. So what happens during that six-month gap between chapter 5 and chapter 6? Well, we take a look at Mark and Luke, and they clue us in regarding what Jesus was doing in the six months. If their accounts are chronological, during this time frame, Jesus preached his most famous sermon, which is the Sermon on the Mount. In all likelihood, he preached that sermon during that six-month gap. Jesus also, it seems, chose his 12 disciples during that gap of time. And then he proceeded a short time after that to give them power and authority to go out two by two into the surrounding towns in Galilee and heal the sick and open the eyes of the blind, even raise the dead and drive out demons. And so he sends them out on their mission two by two. And they came back before the end of that six months. In Matthew 10, verse 8, we read, Jesus gave them authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and drive out demons. And one other very significant thing happens during this gap of time. And we read about that in the other gospel writers. Jesus' cousin and friend, John the Baptist, is executed in prison. He's beheaded by King Herod. And so that news, according to Matthew, came back to Jesus right before he gets his disciples to get into this boat, go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get a little much-needed R&R. So keep in mind all this that's happening. By the way, where did Jesus go? Well, if we put up a map of northern Israel, northern Galilee, we're pretty sure that Jesus, when the passage begins, was in Capernaum. That was as close to any other town in Israel, Jesus' home base. And so he was most likely in Capernaum. When it says he went to the other side, one of the other gospel writers, I think it's Mark, says that he ends up feeding the 5,000 outside of Bethsaida. So you can see that on the northernmost part of the map. And so Jesus, in all likelihood, is in Capernaum, and he needs some R&R, so they go across the Sea of Galilee to this area that has this beautiful grass has some wonderful mountain ridges, and there aren't many people there, which was the most important thing. Jesus needed to get away from the crowds. So think about what's going on in Jesus' mind. He's just heard the news that his friend and cousin has been executed. When you were Jesus walking this earth, you didn't have a lot of close friends, right? Because you had some fair weather friends, but sooner or later, most of them turned their backs on Jesus. And those that pretended to be his friends oftentimes proved not to be. But Jesus, I would say, was a friend of John the Baptist. He was a relative of John the Baptist. So he's certainly grieving over this news that the man he said, there is no one born of woman more righteous than John the Baptist. Remember him saying that? His heart is aching. He needs to get away from the crowds. But at the same time, Jesus' apostles have just come back from their little two-by-two mission. And so they're opening the eyes of the blind. They're healing the sick. They're raising the dead. They're driving out demons. And that's why when he gets to the other shore, we read that the crowds recognized them. Jesus they recognized, but now his 12 apostles were more recognizable than ever as well. So Jesus and his apostles, they need to have some debriefing from their mission. He needs some time to grieve that news about John the Baptist. And so they go to the other side. Verse 2, 
a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Hmm. This walk from Capernaum to Bethsaida would be a walk of about nine miles. These people saw Jesus and his apostles get into the boat. They saw the general direction that boat headed off from the shore of Capernaum. And so they hoof it as quickly as they can that nine miles to meet Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So nine mile walk normally in those days would take you three to four hours. But it says that they were in a hurry in one of the other gospel accounts. And so they probably made it in three, three hours at the most. They run to get, get ahead and to meet Jesus over there. According to John 6, verse 3, Jesus does enjoy a little bit of private time with his apostles on the other side of the Jordan. But in verse 5, John tells us that Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him. We learn a few verses later that there were around 5,000 men. In Matthew's account, though, we learn that there weren't just men in the crowd. There were also women and children. And so there were 5,000 men. So a conservative estimate is that there were at least 10,000 people in the crowd. There could have been as many as 15 to 20,000. But we'll go with a more conservative estimate here. There were at least 10,000 people in that crowd. Mark tells us that when Jesus saw the large crowd, he didn't just feed the 5,000 immediately. It seems that several hours passed because in Mark chapter 6 we read, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. And so presumably Jesus is there maybe around lunchtime with the crowds gathering around him on these grass fields outside of Bethsaida. And so he begins to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus sees that there are sick people in the crowd and the sick people are being brought to Jesus. And so maybe he's opening the eyes of the blind and healing those that might be crippled or sick, driving out demons. Jesus seems to be doing this all afternoon. But as the afternoon passes and evening approaches, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record for us something that John didn't mention. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that Jesus' disciples come up to him and they say this. Jesus, this is a remote place and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So think about this for a moment. Jesus recognized that this big crowd was hungry. The apostles recognized that this big crowd was hungry. But they had vastly different ideas about how to deal with their hunger, didn't they? They weren't on the same page. They both knew they were hungry, but they couldn't agree on how to meet that need. So they say, send them away, Jesus. Send them away. Sometimes I think we do the same thing. There's a need in front of us. Maybe it's that panhandler sitting in front of Del Taco. What do we do? Send them away. No. Send them away. Sometimes it's a family member that we've fallen out with and they may call us on the phone or they may knock on our door and we want nothing to do with them because we had that falling out. What do we want to do? We want to send them away. And that's exactly what Jesus would want us to do with that person, right? That's exactly what Jesus loves. He says, that's what I've called you to do. When I put someone in need right on your doorstep... The best thing you could do is just send them away, right? 
Right? Not so much. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 16, after the apostles have said, Jesus, send them away, here's how he responds. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And this is where John picks up. Partway through verse 5 of John 6, Jesus has already made it clear that the apostles are going to be the ones who are going to feed these people, but it's just a matter of how. So Jesus turns to Philip and asks him, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? Now, why did Jesus ask Philip? Well, Bible scholars have different ideas, but the simplest and probably the most accurate answer is because Philip was a local. We read in John chapter 1 that Philip was from Bethsaida. So he knew this area like the back of his hand. It's his hometown area. And so Jesus, in essence, turns to Philip here and says, Hey, Philip, uh, where can we grab a good bite to eat in these, these parts here? You know of a good restaurant where we can grab something to eat? Ideally, a, a restaurant that does takeout for 10000 You know of a place, Philip? You know of a place? Well, John tells us in verse 6, That Jesus' question is a test. It's a test. Jesus already has in mind what he's going to do, but he gives Philip a test. And why does he give him a test? And while we're at it, what's the difference between a test and a temptation? Something that's really interesting about the Greek word that's translated as test here, it's the same Greek word that's translated elsewhere in the New Testament as temptation. You go to James chapter 1, we read that God cannot be tempted, and he never tempts anyone. But then James turns around and uses the exact same word and says, God tests us. How is that possible? What's the difference between a test and a temptation? Well, it boils down to motive, purpose, intention, and end result. Here's a quick summary. Trials are tests that come from the outside, and God uses them to build us up. Temptations are tests that come primarily from the inside and Satan uses them to tear us down. A lot of times when we fall prey to temptations as Christians, we traditionally have said, the devil made me do it, right? The devil made me do it. And James in chapter 1 says, uh, no, most of the time it's not the devil that made you do it because the devil can't be in all places at all times. He's got hotter irons in the fire than you. He can't babysit you 24-7. Now, he's got a lot of demons at his disposal, but they can't be everywhere either. And so James in chapter 1 says, most of the time we are tempted by our old sinful man and woman. Our old evil desires that stir within us, James says. That's primarily the reason we get dragged into temptation. And so most of the time, temptations are tests that come primarily from the inside And then Satan will jump on the bandwagon and use them to tear us down. So, with that in mind, it says that Jesus is testing Philip. Why is he testing him? Because Jesus has some more important work for Philip to do down the road that he's not ready for. And so Jesus is testing Philip here to strengthen his faith, to change his perspective, and to prepare him for what's up ahead. Amen? Makes sense, doesn't it? So Jesus is preparing him. In verse 7, Philip responds, Jesus, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one of these to even have a bite. The NIV is 
done the math for us. Literally, Philip says, 200 denarii wouldn't give these men and their wives and children even a bite. 200 denarii. And so a denarii was what a blue-collar worker in Jesus' day would earn in a one, day's of, one day worth of work. And so one day worth of work, 200 denarii, that's 200 days of work. Remember back then, they worked six days a week, not five. And so that's about eight months for a blue-collar worker to earn enough money, Philip says, to buy even a morsel for each of these 10,000 people. So the NIV does the work for us and just translates that as eight months' wages. Now I want you to notice here that Philip doesn't answer Jesus' question. He doesn't answer the question Jesus asked. Jesus asked where. Philip answered with basically a how much. Jesus asked where. He answers with a how much. I like how Chuck Swindoll uh, makes this point in his commentary. He writes, Philip looked at the problem in terms of meeting the minimum requirement. If a little for each person was impossible, abundance was not even worth considering. Statistical pessimists think like that. Philip's crunching numbers. He's looking from a natural, physical viewpoint. He's not broadening his mind and looking at the situation through the eyes of faith. Not only is Philip all about the numbers, he's all about the numbers to just meet the bare minimum requirement. And it's going to take eight months of wages just to give these guys a morsel. That's not what Jesus was talking about, just giving them a little morsel, was he? Jesus didn't ask that. Jesus didn't say, hey, Philip, you know, these people are hungry. We need to just give them an itsy-bitsy little appetizer. You know, where can we buy uh, some popcorn? We'll give uh, uh, one kernel of popcorn to each person in the crowd. How's that sound? Uh, How about uh, the the little uh, Circle K? Is there one of those up the street? Uh, We're going to give each person a single corn nut. You know, where where is the nearest store? We'll give each person a, a single Cheerio. Jesus isn't talking about that. Where can we buy bread for these people? Translation into modern day language. Let's give these people a hearty meal. Let's give these folks something to eat. Where can we get something substantial to fill these 10,000 people? Well, Jesus is testing Philip. And let's be honest. Philip was bombing Jesus' test. He didn't do so hot, did he? But up up steps Andrew. Here's a cool little fact for you. Andrew is mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. Every one of those three times that Andrew is mentioned, he's bringing someone to Jesus. John chapter 1, he's bringing his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. How many of you are glad Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus? Amen? Chapter 12, Andrew brings some Greeks to Jesus. And here in chapter 6, who does he bring to Jesus? He brings him a boy carrying his little Spider-Man lunchbox. Now, maybe it wasn't Spider-Man. Maybe it was Samson or something. We don't know. We have no idea how Andrew found this kid in the huge crowd, but thankfully, he doesn't shoo the kid away. He brings him to Jesus. But then he proceeds to say this. And we do this sometimes. We, we start to show some faith, and, and then we backpedal because we're a little embarrassed of what people around us might think. We start to show some faith, but then we backpedal. He does that here. He brings the boy to Jesus. That's a great act of faith. But then he immediately says, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? In, in other words, here's a little food, Jesus, but I'm not sure what good it'll do us. Barley bread. 
was the bread of the poor there in Galilee. Rich people ate wheat bread. But the poor people couldn't afford wheat bread. They ate barley bread. So this little boy probably came from a poor family. When it says five loaves, these are not loaves of bread as we see them. They're small little biscuits with just a little bit of yeast. Probably each of those biscuits was about as filling as a saltine cracker. This was not an old boy. The fish that it says, it says they were two small fish. In those days, people didn't eat fresh fish unless you happened to catch it yourself that day. Just about everybody ate it, ate salted fish or pickled fish because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have ice makers. And so they couldn't keep the fish once it was caught. So they would salt it or they would pickle it. So this, these two fish here, you can think of sardines. The little fish in the Sea of Galilee that they used to pickle weren't much bigger than a sardine. So this little boy has five little biscuits and two sardines. That isn't much to offer Jesus, but aren't you grateful that the boy brought it to Jesus anyway? I, I wish, as kind of a side note, I, I, I wish I had an opportunity to meet this little boy's mom. I'd like to shake her hand. I really would. Thousands of people in the crowd, and it appears that most of them didn't think to bring themselves something to eat. We're going to go out several miles from the nearest town in the middle of who knows where, and we're not going to have food. That's not too smart. But this mom had the foresight, even though she was in a poor family, to pack a lunch for her boy that was going out to listen to Jesus. She packs him a lunch. And one other thing I thought of this last week, she doesn't just have the foresight to pack him a lunch. It seems pretty clear that she had taught her son a marvelous lesson. She had taught him to share. She had taught him to share. And so he comes and all that he has is five little biscuits and two sardines. He brings it to Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 10 and pick up where we left off a few moments ago. John 6, beginning in verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Well, with only five biscuits and two sardines to work with, Jesus tells his twelve apostles to get the crowd ready for lunch by asking them to sit down in the grass. Mark tells us that Jesus instructed them to sit in groups of 50 and groups of 100. And that would have taken a few minutes to, to get done. So the apostles are out there getting them in these seated groups of 50 or 100. And once they get seated, John tells us in verse 11 that Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. Now, Jesus most likely prayed the traditional meal prayer that Jewish fathers would pray for their families. And this is how that Jewish mealtime prayer went. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that as Jesus was praying, 
He was holding the bread and he was looking up to heaven. And after Jesus prayed, he broke the bread. Sound familiar? He breaks the bread. And then he distributes it to his, his 12 apostles who in turn distribute it to the crowd. And the sight must have been amazing. They're thinking, I ended up with two little quarter pieces of biscuit in my basket. I don't know how far that's going to go. And I got like one sardine's head. I don't know how far. How about the guy that got the one sardine's tail? You know, like about that big? You know, that doesn't amount to much. But all right. He's kind of fishing through the basket trying to find that little tail because it got caught between the little weaves. And so he's given the first guy... You know, a little piece of biscuit and a little piece of fish tail. And he reaches back into his basket and now there's two fish tails and two full biscuits. Well, that's funny. I don't remember those there. And so he gives out the two biscuits and the two fish tails. He reaches back in his basket. Now there's four biscuits and four full whole fish. And he gives those away. Now there's eight in his basket. And then there's 16 and then 32. And he keeps giving it out. And by the time everyone is completely filled... They gather the leftovers. Jesus said, let nothing be wasted. And they gather together 12 baskets filled with the leftovers. How amazing that was. How amazing that was. What an incredible sight. Verse 14. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They were referring to the great prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. You can go look at it if you want. Deuteronomy 18. Moses speaks of the great prophet who will one day come. Jesus knew that the crowd intended to come and make him king by force. After all, some of them were likely on their way to Jerusalem for Passover. But there were two big problems with the crowd's plan. For starters, the timing wasn't right. Jesus knew that the Father had sent him to earth. And he had to do things in the proper order. Number one, he had to be crucified, and only then could he be glorified. Amen? He had to be crucified and then be glorified. And secondly, Jesus didn't come to earth to be the kind of king that this crowd wanted. He didn't come to earth to chase out the Romans. He didn't come to earth to sit on a physical throne, at least not at his first coming. He hadn't come to be Israel's go-to baker. Step aside, Pepperidge Farm. Wonder Bread. You've got no wonder on my bread. Dave's incredible bread. Got nothing on my incredible bread. Jesus didn't come to open a bake shop. He didn't come to push out the competition and be number one in the bread market. Jesus came to save the world. So Jesus slipped away from the crowd and from his 12 disciples, withdrawing to a mountainside by himself. There's so many lessons that we can draw from this one miracle that's shared in all four gospel accounts. But I want to point out just three life lessons today. And I hope that each of these is a blessing to you. First of all, life lesson number one is a lesson from the disciples. I encourage you to jot these down on your handout. When God places someone in your path who needs something that Christ wants to give them through you, don't send them away. Empty-handed. This is so important. If you have your hand out there in front of you, you can see it. Most of you can see the screen as well. Read that with me. When God places someone in your path who needs something that Christ wants to give them through you, don't send them away empty-handed. I don't believe that God expects us to meet the needs of every single person who crosses our path. But if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, 
Remember that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So you better believe that every day God will use you to reach someone if you make yourself available to be used. You'd better believe that on a regular basis, God is going to supernaturally and strategically place individuals in your path that need something that you can give. We just saw this happen yesterday. It was so cool. We went to the park yesterday, and the wind's kicking up, and 10 o'clock rolls around the time the picnic was going to start. It's like, eh, there's not too many people from our church here yet. But as the first hour, hour and a half rolled by, a few more from the church came in, and We went to this park intentionally having too many hot dogs and too much food because we were going to use it as an opportunity to reach out to other families and kids at the park and say, hey, you want a hot dog? We're giving away free hot dogs. Here's an invitation to church while we're at it. And it was so cool over the course of the late morning and early afternoon when we were there for me to see some of the ministry that took place from you. And there was Kent that had an opportunity just to pray with someone that was walking by that needed prayer and asked for prayer. There were others that wanted to take an invitation that have been out of church for a while during COVID or for some other reason hadn't been in church. We were able to invite a lot of people. There were others we were able to feed hot dogs to. It was cute. Near the end of our time, we were packing up, and and we had a bunch of desserts still left. And a little family with a mom and several kids came by. A little boy was on the skateboard, and and I talked to the mom and said, Hey, you want some dessert? We've got plenty if you want some. And she says, No, thank you. And I see the little boy on the skateboard doing this number. And and he, he's looking to see what we have on the dessert table. And so I turned to him, would you like something? He asked his mom. He came back, and we loaded him up with cupcakes. <laughs> well, one of the coolest moments yesterday, and I don't want, uh, want to, for the sake of anonymity, mention names, but there was a man that came to that park. Long story short, he said there was a very good chance he wouldn't live through that day. If he hadn't spoken with and prayed with one of the ladies in our church that carved out the time to sit next to him, listen to his story, and pray over him. Turns out he was a Christian who had lost hope, and he was thinking of ending it all. And I was so blown away to see that what I was about to preach today was being lived out right in front of me, that God had supernaturally and strategically placed our church at that park at the perfect time, that God wanted to place him in that park on that day and at that time to speak with that one attender from Impact Christian Church who would take the time to listen and to pray for him. And in all likelihood, he'll be back with us today. Praise God that when we make ourselves available... He uses us in a mighty way, which ties in nicely with the second lesson, the lesson we can learn from the boy. Whenever there is a need, give all that you have to Jesus and let him do the rest. Begin with what you have, but be sure you give it all to him. I thought that was so well worded. I just quoted Warren Wearsby there. It's a great lesson. Read that with me. Whenever there is a need, give all that you have to Jesus and let him do the rest. Begin with what you have, but be sure you give it all to Him. Amen? The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle, as I mentioned, aside from Jesus' resurrection that made it into all four gospel accounts. So think about this. What a loss it would have been if this little boy had just kept his lunch to himself. After all, that's why Mommy made it for me, to eat myself. And if he had chosen to do that, he would have filled his little tummy for four, maybe five hours, 
and thousands would have gone without food for much longer. And if he had kept that little lunch to himself, we wouldn't have the hundreds of millions of people who over the last 2,000 years have heard this story and read this story and been inspired to serve Jesus Christ better because of it. What a loss if this little boy had hoarded that lunch for himself. What a loss it would have been. Parents, you may never know how much your investment in the spiritual formation of your kids will pay off in the long run. Sometimes the most important moments for us as parents or grandparents are those moments where it's the end of the day and we're dog-tired and we don't want to talk to anyone, we don't want to see anyone, we just want to close our bedroom door, lay down and go to bed. We're tired, we're hungry, we're grumpy. And sometimes it's those moments where you just have a little bit left in your tank and God says that little bit you have left, put it on the table for me to use. And he can make a greater difference sometimes in the life of your kids or grandkids through that little bit that you give him at the end of a day than when your tank is full. Sometimes we do have that person knock on our door or call us on the phone at an inopportune time. You've had this happen. I know you have. Someone texts you and you're like, oh, no. Really? Why now? Why today? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend that text didn't come in. Next time I see him, oh, I didn't get that text. And God is saying, put what you have to give on the table and let me do my thing. You see, you may may not think that you have much to give. That's okay. This little boy didn't have much to give. A few saltine crackers and a couple sardines. That's not much. But that's okay. Bring all that you have to Jesus anyway. Give all that you have to Jesus and let him do the rest. And this one dovetails beautifully with lesson number three, a lesson from Jesus. Jesus says, in effect, you do the addition, I'll take care of the multiplication. And everything I have commanded you will be accomplished with plenty left over. It's a great quote from Chuck Swindoll. I thought, wow, that's better than I could word it. I'll give you another quote here as a lesson. It's a great quote. Let's read this together. Jesus says, in effect, you do the addition, I'll take care of the multiplication. And everything I have commanded you will be accomplished with plenty left over. Remember that each miraculous sign here in the book of John points to something. That's why it's called a sign. It points to something. So we ask the question, what does this miraculous sign here in chapter 6 point to? What does it point to? This is the fourth miraculous sign that John has communicated in the first six chapters. What does it point to? Well, it reveals... That Jesus is the great need meter who the Jews had prayed to for centuries. Once again, remember that prayer that every Jewish head of household would pray before every meal. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. For centuries they had been praying to Jesus Christ and didn't even realize it. And on this day outside of Bethsaida on these grass fields, right in front of them, right in front of their noses, was the one that their ancestors had been praying to for years, the King of Heaven, who brings forth bread from the earth. And Jesus shows him in a way they could see, in a way they could touch, in a way they could taste how true it is that God 
through Jesus Christ, meets our needs. He's the great need meter. You see, there's not a problem that Jesus can't solve. There's not a need that Jesus can't meet. There's not a shortage that Jesus can't turn into a surplus. But I want you to make sure you don't miss this. Nine times out of ten, when Jesus meets your needs, nine times out of ten, when He takes a little bit of something and makes it into something much greater, nine times out of ten, He will only begin to act and move once you give Him the little bit that you have to offer. He waits for you to bring the little bit you have to offer. And then Jesus Christ will multiply. He's waiting for you to add before He begins to multiply. This principle applies to your finances. You can't hoard your tithe and your offerings and expect God to bless your finances. It doesn't work that way. He can't bless your finances if you don't give Him anything to bless. It applies, this principle does, it applies to your talents and your time. You can't be stingy with your time and talents and expect Christ to make a greater impact through you. And it really applies to all the areas of your faith. You must surrender your whole life to Christ if you truly want Him to work in you and through you, doing exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you ever imagined He could do through you. There's no doubt God has used you in certain ways in the past. Amen? Many of you would say, hopefully all of you would say, yeah, I I can identify some small ways that Jesus Christ has worked through me in the past. But don't you have a longing, don't you have a desire for Jesus Christ to work through you in amazing ways beyond anything you ever thought or imagined He could do through you? The little bits you have, bring it to Jesus. There will be times when you're standing in line at the Dollar Tree And you feel the Spirit of God tug at your heart to speak to that person in front of you. And you may have your old nature say, well, I wish uh, Pastor Dane was here. He could talk to him. Pastor Dane ain't there. And I wish Alan, man, Alan's such a bubbly guy. If he wheeled up in his wheelchair and just started doing his thing, man, he could really minister to this person. God didn't place Alan there. God placed you there. When you get that phone call late at night, when you get that text early in the morning, that phone call and that text didn't come to me. It didn't come to Alan. It didn't come to Kent. It didn't come to Frank. It didn't come to Sharon. It didn't come to anyone else. It came to you. And so you take that little bit that you have, no matter how small it be, may be in your own mind, and you add it to what Jesus has to work with, and you watch how he multiplies the blessings through you. I love the fact that I get to preach each Sunday. Not because I'm the world's great preacher. Not because God couldn't send an angel down to do an incredibly good job of preaching, a much better job than I could ever do. Imagine if you had Gabriel up here preaching. That'd be awesome. But you're stuck with me. And I thank God for that, that he has given me an opportunity with a little I have to offer to be used in a valuable and meaningful way. And the same goes for you. Is there someone else out there that can do a better job? Probably. But that's irrelevant. He chooses to use you. And it's one of the greatest privileges in the universe. You have five biscuits? Bring them to Jesus. You got two sardines? Bring them to Jesus. And stand back and watch what he does. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you 
for the privilege of knowing you and being loved by you. Thank you for the privilege of being used by you in meaningful ways. I pray that we would in faith give you what we have. Stop leaning on our own understanding what only makes sense in our minds. Because our minds, Lord, they're like peanut brains compared to yours. Help us, O Lord, to offer you what we have, to add what we have, put it on the table, and allow you to multiply it. Thank you for the faithfulness of a mom who packed that boy's lunch and the faithfulness of the little boy who brought all that he had for you to use. We love you, Lord. I pray if there's anyone here today who has never made a decision to accept Christ as Savior and Lord, that right now they would pray to you and say, Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name asking you for forgiveness. Please forgive me for my sins. Please help me to follow you, to love you and obey you for the rest of my life. I put you in the driver's seat of my life. Come into my life. I will follow you from this point forward. This is my commitment to you. I want to be a Christian. I want to be born again. I want to be saved. In Jesus' name.